Over the last nine months, I've attempted to talk to someone like Matt Alley many times. I've been trying to get a hold of a broker who would talk to me about the troubling trends related to COVID in the merger and acquisition part of our industry. Matt was an open book today. He talked about how his many years of experience have changed, how his brokerage firm differentiates themselves, and even walked me through some deals, both difficult and some successful ones. I hope you appreciate this chat about mergers and acquisitions as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes. I'm your host, Peter Murphy Lewis. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We have a great episode in store for you. Today, I'm joined by Matt Alley, Managing Director and one of six partners at Senior Living Investment Brokerage. Having joined the company back in 2006, Matt has created quite a name for himself within the company. He specializes in nursing homes and other senior living options. Since his arrival, he has won the prestigious National Achievement Award every year since 2009, as well as the President and Chairman's Club Awards. If you need more information on nursing home mergers, acquisitions, and real estate, he's your man, and that's why he's joining me today. Matt, welcome to LTC Heroes. Thanks for having me, Peter. Appreciate it. So to get to know you a little bit before we get into the business side of things, which is why we brought you on. I would like to start off with some icebreakers. Matt, do you have any uncommon hobbies? Um, No, I basically spend all of my free time either at kids sporting events or golfing. So those are both very common, but uh, I spend probably more time golfing than I should. But also, like I said, spend a lot of time at my four kids sporting events. I was just going to ask you how many time for uncommon stuff at that point. What's the uh, age range? So I have four kids. My youngest is about to be five and my oldest is about to be 12. Two girls, two boys, and uh, keep my wife and I plenty busy. There's a chance that I already know the answer to this question, and it might be you don't have time, but I'll ask it anyways. What's the last non-long-term care book or non-real estate merger and acquisition book that you've read? That's a great question. Unfortunately, I'm not a huge reader. I spend way too much time on Twitter and reading about sports, a bunch of meaningless things. But my favorite kind of recent book that I read was Moneyball, which was written about the Oakland A's uh, baseball team. I love that book. I'm a huge baseball guy and uh, really enjoyed kind of the analytical part about it. It kind of brought out the inner nerd in me, kind of married that with, you know, just my love for baseball. It's funny you mention that because we wrote a pretty well-received white paper last year talking about how Moneyball could be used as a parallel in understanding some of the bottom line and some of the tricks of the trade to improve your profitability and long-term care. So we have a white paper called Moneyball. I'm going to need to check that out because it, it makes sense. It's not... The book was essentially about finding inefficiencies in the market. And yep. it wasn't about balls and strikes or hits and errors you know, obviously it got down to that nitty gritty, but it was about what does the industry ultimately undervalue and how can we take advantage of that? And so it was really interesting to me. And unfortunately I don't read enough books to update that list. Hopefully someday I'll get back into it. We, you know, we'll go on vacation and my wife will be reading two or three books and I'm just sitting there on Twitter and wasting my time away. 
It's all right. It's the first time it's been mentioned on the podcast. So we'll forgive you. Plus you have four kids. There we go. Exactly. And moving into the, our industry, senior living mm-hmm. and long-term care. Matt, if there's anything you could change about long-term care industry with the snap of finger, what would it be? That's a good question. Haven't had a ton of time to think through that, but I think I would change how it's viewed by the public. I think that as an industry, we don't always do a great job. And I'm not an operator, I'm a broker, but operators and industry groups, I feel like we could continue to do a better job of promoting senior housing as what it is. If you talk to the general public, they think of all seniors housing as essentially being nursing homes. And that's not the case. I do a lot of nursing home deals. Some are really nice. Some need some work. But that's not all seniors housing is. Assisted living, memory care, independent living, active adult is a huge part of this industry. And those facilities, you will see very active seniors uh, that are there, healthy seniors. Ultimately, I feel like we could do a better job of projecting the message that we're not just, you know, essentially a hospital for older folks. This industry is so much more than that. Now, obviously, the nursing homes take care of the sickest of the sick, but we could get a more positive message out there. I think it would really help our industry and it would ultimately help occupancy. Matt, I know that this is not necessarily a visual medium. This is aimed for a, intended for a podcast. So sure. I'll let the audience know you look particularly young. So the next question has to do with, in your career, what's the biggest change that you've witnessed in the long-term care industry? And you mentioned that you started the long-term care back in 2006, if I believe. So it sounds like you spent most of your professional career in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm almost 40. So I feel like I used to be young. I'm maybe not there (laughs) anymore. Yeah, I started when I was in my mid 20s. A few years out of school, I was doing investment banking for a large company doing mergers and acquisitions, just didn't see a pathway to have client interaction for a while was doing a lot of back office stuff. And while I enjoyed that, it wasn't ultimately where I found a lot of fulfillment. So getting into a spot where I could have almost immediate client interaction was was huge for me. How things have changed, technology has just changed everything in, in our business. Now, maybe we're even lagging behind other industries, but I remember my first trip, I had to print out maps from MapPoint to get me from 10 different facilities to another one over the course of three days. And if there was construction or a road close, I had no way to get back there. And actually a funny story from my first trip, I was with the person that trained me at, at this company and uh, we're driving kind of middle of nowhere in, in Texas. We leave a gas station because we had to fill the gas up. As we're leaving, Jeff, the person that trained me here in this industry tells me, oh yeah, thanks for uh, paying for the gas. I said, I, I didn't pay for the gas. Did you pay for the gas? No. So we realized about 10 or 15 miles down the road in rural Texas that we basically just pumped and ran and uh, end up having to call into the office. And they found the the gas station and paid the $45 or whatever it was. So thankfully, I did not get, you know, on my first trip, did not get arrested into a uh, rural Texas. That's a great Um, story to talk about changes in the industry. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, that's from our perspective as, as brokers. We used to spend a ton of time faxing confidentiality agreements and waiting to get those back. And every moment of every day that we were productive had to be from our desk at our office. That slowly changed and then obviously changed in a big way 
18 months or so ago when quarantine started with COVID. From a overall operational perspective, and again, I'm not an operator, but technology has changed the way that they're able to, you know, especially in the nursing home industry, the way they're able to bill, the way they're able to track hours, the way they're able to electronically have a ton of information on all of the patients. From an M&A perspective, it's changed in a huge way because we have virtual data rooms. So, you know, they don't have to go in and spend three days at the facility and cause a lot of uproar at the facility when we can just upload documents into that data room. So those are the types of things. Really, in my mind, it comes down to technology from the day-to-day of me having to print out maps all the way to billing and nursing homes and being able to take advantage of every level of care that needs to be provided to each resident. And last question before we get into your job and what it means and kind of the questions that your customers ask you when they get started working with you is related to a mentor or a hero. Is there, you've already mentioned, but if maybe you could highlight it, who is the person that's taught you most about long-term care? And uh, what's the most important insight that you remember picking up from them? Yeah, that's a great question. I've had great clients. I do the vast majority of my work in Texas. Our company's nationwide, but we each kind of have our own territory. And uh, I was brought on, as you said, about 15 years ago to open the Texas territory and the Texas market. So I've had great clients, clients that I've spent tons of hours with, touring facilities, out to dinner with, maybe a cocktail or two too many from time to time at conferences. But certainly the person that trained me was Jeff, Jeff Binder who's another partner here at Senior Living Investment Brokerage down in our St. Louis office. And he generally handles more of the Midwest and some of the institutional level clients. But he was the one that traveled with me for the first year or two when I was a 24-year-old guy that nobody wanted to trust because I knew nothing. Spent a lot of time with me. You know, Obviously, we're kind of at a point now where we're partners and and are able to, to work together a little bit. But yeah, probably what he taught me the most, and not necessarily about the industry as a whole, but as brokers, is just the importance of relationships. As we've talked about in the past, Peter, the vast majority of now our clients are repeat clients. And Jeff was pretty good about teaching me and impressing upon me that every little win in a deal is not necessarily worth it if it leads to clients not wanting to to use you again for the next deal treating them the way you'd want to be treated yourself, and then ultimately taking the effort to go down and see them, because I'm not based out of Texas, to go down and see them regularly, even if we don't have a specific deal to talk about, just to grab coffee with them, grab lunch, grab dinner, grab a beer together. That was something that really helped me in my in my time kind of learning how to be the best broker I can be. Great. So moving into the topic at hand, I think where I want to start off with mergers and acquisition, what's the most frequent first question you get when you tell someone in the industry what you do? There's no way there are enough buildings that are trading hands for you to have a job. I get that all the time. And that's people in the industry, but it's a lot of people outside of the industry. Just moved to St. Louis. Peter, you and I were talking about that from Chicago. We lived in Chicago for 14 years, my family and I and moved to St. Louis. And, you know, we meet a ton of new people here, you know, over the course of the past month or so, everybody asks, what do you do? What do you do? I'm a commercial real estate broker. People understand that. What do you Mm -hmm. sell? Seniors housing facilities. That's it. And then I have to go into the 
fact that there's about a thousand nursing homes in Texas alone. And then you add in other seniors housing facilities and a five to 10% of those trade hands every year, which is, you know, maybe a little high, but you know, somewhere in that range. And we're, you know, one of the leaders in, in our industry as brokers, we have an opportunity to capture a pretty good part of that market share. So that's the first thing people say is there's no way you can actually be employed just selling seniors housing facilities. And, you know, in my mind, that couldn't be further from the truth. What's unique about being a broker in our industry compared to your peers in other industries? Yeah, sure. Great question. Most of the commercial real estate brokers are able to post their listings publicly. So they put it on their website, they might put it on LoopNet. Their goal is to reach as many hundreds of people as they possibly can that might buy the building because it's an office space or it's an industrial park or whatever it may be. There's no concern for confidentiality. In our business, confidentiality is extremely important. And I would imagine of the commercial real estate classes, healthcare is probably the one where it's most important. So we can't put our listings on LoopNet. We can't put our listings on our website. I can't send out a mass email to the thousand or so email addresses I have in my group with every deal we ever have. So we need to be very targeted in who we send deals to. Um, so it's in my mind, it's more labor intensive because I'm picking up the phone every single listing I have. And that's the case for everybody in our company. We're picking up the phone on every listing we have and calling each specific group, asking if they'd be interested in a quote unquote deal in Northeast Texas that may fit your profile. And then at that point, after we have the conversation, send them a confidentiality agreement. Once we get that back, then we'll send them the offering memorandum. So it is, we have to take three or four steps just before a potential buyer hears about the deal. Then most of my peers have to take in other commercial real estate assets because ultimately, and, and this is pretty obvious to, I'm sure to you and, and probably to most of the listeners, once staff finds out, once competitors find out, once residents find out, once family members find out, it can cause some pretty major panic at a facility. And once that happens, the facility is not nearly as marketable if it loses staff and, and if it loses residents. So it's not good for the buyer. It's not good for the seller to, to get the word out early. So that's our biggest goal. It's not perfect, but I would say I can't remember. It's probably been multiple years since I've worked on a deal that has had confidentiality broken before the seller decided it was time to announce. What are the signs of a good real estate transaction in long-term care? Most importantly, obviously it's to have a good asset, a marketable asset. That's all obvious. Being a good market, performing well, good staff, good resident base, not a ton of competitors, all that stuff's easy. Probably don't need to spend a lot of time talking about that. From a transactional perspective, it's amazing how important it is for the buyer and seller. They don't have to necessarily get along but just not be confrontational up front. And that's kind of our goal as brokers is our biggest job, in, in my opinion, is matching up buyer and seller. And it's creating a market for the seller, bringing in a bunch of offers and putting buyer and seller together. At its base, that's our biggest job. But secondly, and not much less important, is managing that relationship throughout the transaction process. I just sold my house and just bought a new house. 
once you get under contract, there's inspections, maybe a financing contingency, although in this day and age, you know, it's hard to get one of those. Once you put a deal under contract, it's pretty certain the deal is probably going to close. In these, as soon as you sign the letter of intent, there are there's hurdle after hurdle after hurdle after hurdle that you have to get over. And to have a buyer and seller that are somewhat on the same page is really important. And so as brokers, it's important for us to manage that. And sometimes we have to do a little bit of translating. You know, if a seller says this about the buyer, you know, maybe I deliver the message in a little bit of a different tone. But ultimately, again, if it's not a confrontational buyers, you know, sellers trying to cheat me out of this, this, and this, and buyers trying to retrade. And if we can get out of that, then some of the struggles or challenges that come up because every single deal has challenges, they're a lot easier to get over later in the process if both buyer and seller, you know, essentially respect each other. Is that one of the harder parts of your job being kind of the psychologist between two opposing interests or is it finding new assets to add to your portfolio? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I was a financing and accounting major. And uh, in some ways, I feel like I should have been a psychology major or maybe even an early childhood major because, you know, at times, and maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but you know, at times there is some level of just kind of babysitting and and having to provide updates when there isn't an update to provide. And it's, but I get it. I understand it because for these sellers, oftentimes it is their nest egg. And when they're selling it, they're looking to sell and retire. At times, these facilities have been in the family for multiple generations. They haven't sold before. They're looking for us to guide them all the way through. So I get that there's personalities involved. But yes, the kind of interpersonal skills of being a broker, it seems like you got to be smart, you've got it. But just being able to deal with people, I think is really important. Kind of knowing when to tell a hard truth versus knowing when to kind of massage it a little bit and take care of the various personalities at play. That's something that over the course of time, I feel like I've learned a little bit but also I'm not perfect at. And if you had all my clients on here, you may hopefully you'd get a lot of good stories, but I'm sure you'd get a story or two where um, I should have said something that I didn't say or, or vice versa. And most of the time we get through that. Every year, I feel like I get a lot better at it. How many transactions are you doing a year yourself? That's a great question. So as a company, we've done 50 or 51 transactions this year so far. We are on pace to shatter the record from 2019. So that just kind of gives you an idea of where the market is. And we could probably get into that a little bit more deeply later on. But I generally say that if I do 10 to 12 transactions a year, it's been a real good year. It's hard because some of those are portfolios that are $75 million portfolios. And some of them are literally a million and a half dollar rural nursing homes that need to be shut down. Generally, I would say I'm working on 10 to 12 deals that close. And for that to happen, you probably have another five to eight that fall apart after going under contract for various reasons. During last year, it was a lot more than that. But, and then from there, you know, obviously there's just kind of a funnel where um, you have to have so many listings to kind of work through deals and be involved with buyers to kind of funnel all the way down to, to those closings. Because in this industry, as soon as you sign a letter of intent, every pressure is for the deal to fall apart. And uh, we need to fight against that. What percentage of transactions in any given year in the US are not done through a broker? I don't know the answer to that. 
I would guess, man, that's a good question. I would, I'm probably not the right person to ask. I would speculate that number of transactions because transaction volume is harder because you might have a billion dollar merger acquisition that takes over the whole market. But if we're just looking at transactions or median transaction volume, I would guess 50 to 60% are represented by brokers. Mm-hmm. And by brokers, I mean, that can be pretty loose. Certainly, there are commercial real estate brokers that don't do seniors housing, but might have a friend that owns a nursing home. I get those calls all the time where mm-hmm. they want me to go plug a buyer in. And uh, that's not really what we do. But yeah, I would say probably 50 to 60%. Some states are much lower than that. I know mm-hmm. there are states, Illinois is one of them, Florida is one of them, Louisiana is another one, just off the top of my head, where nursing homes generally kind of trade hands between all the operators. They're all, they all know each other. The seniors housing side of it in those states are not the same, but it's just a real closely held state. Texas is not that way. There's a ton of operators. There's a ton of groups looking to get into the state. You know, So I've been fortunate enough where I would guess in Texas, that number is not 50 or 60%. That number might be 80%. So that's allowed me to kind of come in and not every deal is, is represented by a broker, but it's a higher percentage in Texas than, than just about any other state, I would guess. When you first started out, you weren't a partner like you are today. What did your first six months of work look like? I was on the phone constantly getting yelled at, getting hung up on. The nice thing about our company is that, you know, we're not a huge company. We have 16 brokers between our Chicago and St. Louis office, but we all get along, I would say, really well. You know, we do kickoff meetings, we do awards trips where our our spouses get to hang out together. So, Obviously, we're not all friends, but we're all friendly with each other. And so having the support system for me of that first six months, 12 months, 24 months of just cold calling every single nursing home and seniors housing facility in Texas, it was pretty tiring. But I always like to tell the story. The first deal that I closed was a cold call from my first day of cold calling, which was maybe two weeks into starting. And uh, I was a buyer out of Fort Worth called Creative Solutions and Healthcare, Gary Blake, very well-known operator in Texas. He was my first day of cold calling. I got to the president of one of the biggest operators in Texas and had a great conversation with him. Went down and met with him you know, when I was a 24-year-old and, and probably didn't need to shave with Jeff and spent some time with him. And then one of our first listings, he ended up buying. And I've had a relationship with him. And just about every single one of my clients, it's a similar story where it was a cold call from one of those first two years of, of cold calling. Yeah, I mean, it's changed. That was a tough time where you're talking to an administrator who has might not even know who the real estate owner is, and then trying to kind of triangulate everything back to the owner and develop a database, which if I didn't have that database in front of me, I'd kind of be lost now. If you were to cold call today, would it be any different than it was 17 years ago? I don't know. There's more information available. So 15 years ago, the big operators had websites. The individual operators, if they had a website, it wasn't very good. Now, if I were to cold call now, I'd still have to do a lot of the, to use a sports example, a lot of blocking and tackling where it's just kind of do the basics of you've got to call and you've got to talk to the right person. But you could be a lot more educated. You know, we've brought on a lot of new brokers over the past four or five years. You can be a lot more educated just by kind of doing a simple search. That being said, you can also be overloaded by spending so much time trying to get prepared for a cold call that may mean nothing. 
that you spend an hour calling an administrator that has no idea who to talk to, you know, it ends up kind of being an inefficient usage of your time. I'm going to put you on the spot. What would be your best cold call if you were able to get a hold of me? Let's say I'm an owner. You have a sense that there's a chance that I'd be interested in sailing. How does that first conversation go if I haven't heard of you and you and I haven't met? Now, is this me now or is this me 15 years ago? Either, either way, a lot of the listeners have heard this, but they might not have heard a great cold call like I'm sure you have. I hope I'll do it justice. Now, if I'm talking to Peter, owner of a nursing home in Dallas-Fort Worth area, when we're talking, I need to impress upon you my experience in the industry. I'm not in the business of telling you when it's time to sell. I'm in the business of Peter, when it's your time to sell, I'm the best person to represent you. And I know all the buyers I've worked on 125 facilities in Texas have sold 125 facilities in Texas. And ultimately you're going to get the best price by hiring somebody that's extremely experienced in the state of Texas. That works. <laughs> I just signed up with you. I needed to put my, uh, I should have put my AirPods in for that. I, I'm only good with the AirPods in. Do you do your cold calls when you're walking around or you do it I, on your desk? I do. I try my, and I'm not making a ton of cold calls anymore, but it's a lot of warm calls. So it might yeah. be Peter, there's a listener to this podcast that wants to talk to you. And, and uh, so I'm calling him and I may not have had a conversation, but there is at least a little bit of a connection. But yes, I am uh, a little fidgety at times. Same thing as when I'm at my kids' games and when I'm playing golf, I'm a little fidgety. So I need to stand up and, and walk around the room a little bit. And, I've and been maybe, I've, air, maybe air high five no one or punch a wall if it goes poorly. I have done sales as well. And I also tend to walk. It comes off more authentic and the For fidgety sure. enough comes off in my feet instead of in my voice. You know, ultimately, I think it's a little healthier to be on your feet a little bit too. So, you know, that way when I go home after eight, nine hours of this, you know, I feel like I'm at least not just sluggish. Matt, the first time we chatted about a month or two ago, you said something along the lines of there's a lot of capital, there's a lot of debt and equity on the sidelines, and that needs to be put to work. Can you explain what that means and how that's affecting the trends today? First off, give you a little background. When I first started in 06, the market for seniors housing was fantastic. It was through the roof. You put a building on the on the market, four, five, six offers right away. Then 06, 07 were great. 08 started to get credit crunch. 09 was really bad. But that was a recession that happened slowly. So there might have been a lot of capital at all these funds that wanted to buy buildings, but slowly and surely people wanted to get that money back. Or they just decided we had to hold on to it because we can't get debt. Debt was very difficult to raise. 15, 16 months ago, COVID hit. So the economy was in a great spot. Our market was soaring. We had the best year in 2019 by almost 50% of any other year prior to that in our 20-year history. So these REITs or private equity companies or owner-operators all were flush with cash in March of 2020, wanting to buy buildings. Some deals still got done, but a lot got put to the sidelines. That money did not get returned back to the investors. That money stayed at these funds. If it was a publicly traded REIT and they had done a stock offering to raise funds, those funds weren't being returned back to investors. Same with private equity firms that would raise private funds. 
to acquire facilities. That money was not returned to investors. Our industry went through, you know, certainly the toughest time since I've been doing this. I think most operators would say it's the toughest time they've ever had operating these facilities. So there wasn't a lot of volume in 2020. That capital, more so on the equity side than the debt side, was still there earning almost 0% interest because interest rates have been so low for so long. So they now need to kind of catch up. Not that they're going to make bad decisions, not that these private equity firms are going to make bad decisions buying something they shouldn't buy, but they're aggressively looking for deals now that you know, we're certainly not back as an industry to where we were in the beginning of March of 2020. But as things have gone upwards, just about everybody is reporting occupancy gains. You know, obviously, we'll see how things go with this variant over the past couple of weeks. But now that capital, the investors are putting pressure on these firms to go buy buildings. Because again, it's not like you can stick it in some debt vehicle or some treasury bill or whatever and get a 5% interest rate, you're getting almost zero. So now these groups are all looking in our industry saying, okay, we see upside, we see occupancy upside. We've seen in, on the skilled nursing side that the government is taking care of us for the most part. Now they've done everything perfectly, certainly not, but they have kept a lot of buildings afloat through CARES Act and Medicaid rate add-ons and you know those types of things. So now these buyers who have been kind of traditional buyers are sitting on a lot more money than they probably were when the market was really strong because they haven't bought nearly to the same volume that they have in the past. So now those groups are out there trying to aggressively buy buildings or quote unquote, put their capital to work on a debt side. And I'm not a debt expert, but really once vaccines started to get in these facilities in December, January, I saw a huge thawing of the debt market. Community banks were out looking for deals and getting very aggressive. Obviously, interest rates are at historic lows. So it was pretty cheap to borrow money, which then in turn made the equity investment uh, and the equity returns a lot more favorable. So that's a very long-winded answer of a way for me to get around to the fact that you know our economy was always strong and these funds were always there. And this is an industry that has stood the test of time, and it certainly withstood the test of the past 16 months, I think these investors are excited about what the next step for seniors housing facilities and skilled nursing facilities is. That trend that's happening at the market level, do you see that at your level of who's knocking on your door? Do you yep. see more buyers knocking? And what's the price point? Are there sellers as well? Because COVID is scared them a little bit about the longevity and sustainability of their facility. This episode was brought to you by experience.care. Experience Care is a provider of world-class EHRs that alleviate the pain of disorganization in your facility. Its dashboard is designed to minimize confusion and maximize productivity. Experience Care is designed for CEOs that care about their CNAs and their residents alike. Visit experience.care to learn more about the best EHR in the market. I'll handle the latter part of your question first. The sellers absolutely are more motivated to sell right now. They did not want to sell last year when they felt like they were selling at the bottom. But now that the market's come around, they're just tired. And I get it. Last summer, I hate to say this, and I'll probably make some people mad at me. I played a lot of golf and didn't work as much as I normally do because there just wasn't transaction volume. 
So for me, I'm coming into this, the beginning of 2021, pretty refreshed and motivated to work pretty hard. My friends and clients that are operators, that was not at all the case. They worked as hard as they ever have, harder than they ever have. And so for the smaller operators that don't have enormous teams to manage these facilities, they're worn out. And now that the market is back in a spot where it's, they're going to get a really good value on their investment, now they feel like it's the right time to sell. That hopefully answers the latter part of that question. The former part of that question, you know, it's hard. The majority of just kind of out of the blue calls or emails we get from buyers, truthfully, whether it be from our website, Google searches are not to be political about it. They're not great buyers. They may have, say they have $500 million raised in a fund. It's not there, but we have seen a huge shift with our regular buyers that now are calling us more aggressively looking for deals. And by saying that, it goes from, okay, we are only interested in 25 to $100 million portfolios in Texas all the way across since I've known them. Now, since they've got all this capital they need to put to work over the past six or seven months, it's been, okay, we'll widen that out. We'll take a look at the single facility that's $8 million. We'll take a look in Louisiana. We'll take a look in Arizona. We're just looking to grow. They're not looking to grow just for growth's sake. They're willing to be a little bit more aggressive, both in pricing and in criteria. And that's really helped the market for our sellers. In terms of the price point for a mom and pop facility, if you had a smaller facility reach out to you and they're a little bit nervous, they've never spoken to a broker, and they're wondering, they're similar to what you said to your friends. They're tired. It's been a grind. What advice would you give to them as they start to think about it? What advice would you say in terms of the timing and the price right now? And then also, how would you diminish their anxiety as they start to think about the, the paperwork, the legality, that negotiation point that you said that can be quite tiresome for them at the psychological level of nickel and diming? Walk me through how you help that first conversation be a little bit more comfortable for a smaller facility. That's a great question. And I'll tackle the pricing part first. The first question just about everybody asks me after kind of who are you is how much is my building worth? And I may or may not know the building. I certainly don't know their financials. So it's really hard. I mean, I've sold buildings for twenty dollars to $25,000 a bed in Texas. I've sold buildings for over $100,000 a bed in Texas. So there's really no clear guidance on what a per bed number is. So really our goal when talking to especially mom and pop owners is for us to get financial and census information. Once we have that, then we can put together what we feel like is a pretty accurate proposal or broker's opinion of value. So that's kind of the first hurdle is, hey, I've got this building on the corner of Main Street and Front Street in Fort Worth, what's it worth? Obviously, I can't provide a lot of information there, but the first hurdle is to receive those financials and census information. That's generally pretty available to them. So it's not a big ask or a big dig for them to try to get deep into their data. Once we receive that, we're able to provide, like I said, a pretty accurate broker's opinion of value and proposal. As far as the anxiety and how much work it's going to be, there's no getting around it. It is work. Their buyers, especially with smaller operators, are willing to 
overlook some of the documents that maybe that owner operator is not able to provide. But when it comes down to it, they've got to get equity. They've got to get lending for these deals. And those are, that's all information they need. So it is a bit time consuming. What I like to do though, is, is when I first take on a listing is ask the seller to start putting together that information, put it in a data room. So it's kind of ready to go. And it's not a a 50 piece request all at once that they have to put together within a week. From a negotiation perspective, that's why they hire us. You know, obviously if a seller wants to be involved in some of the negotiation, we're happy to have them involved. And obviously we're clearing any countering or anything with the seller. But our goal and frankly our incentive is to get the highest possible price for a seller. So you kind of have to trust us as being the professionals in the industry to go out and negotiate the best possible deal for you. Now, again, we're not doing it in a vacuum. We're not just saying, hey, hands off. We're not going to listen to any of your advice. That's certainly not the case. One of the, you know, obviously the number one reason they hire us is because we have access to buyers. Number two is being able to hold their hand all the way through the process and negotiate the best possible deal for them. And we feel like we pay for what ultimately is our commission at the end, many fold because of not only the handholding through the due diligence and information gathering process, but just the countering and being able to, I can tell you numerous stories of having competitive bidding processes that led to putting together a market that was higher than we thought and, and higher than the seller thought. And especially when we're dealing with mom and pop groups that are retiring or it's in the family or whatever, for me, that's pretty fulfilling when we're able to find a couple hundred thousand dollars extra that we didn't think were there and they didn't think were there because we put together a really good market, had buyers that were competitive and, and were able to get them up to a pricing level that we were pretty proud of. That leads me to my next question. What's the most movement you've seen percentage-wise or dollar-wise in a price going down what you and the seller thought was possible? And also what's the biggest rise you've seen? You know, it's hard to come up with specific scenarios. We did a specific transaction in the Dallas area. It was just outside of Dallas for a larger operator in the Midwest that had only one building left in Texas. So they were looking to sell it. It wasn't a particularly well-performing property. It wasn't brand new, but it wasn't old. It had HUD debt on it. So a buyer was able to come in and didn't have to find new debt. And it was pretty attractive HUD debt that they were just able to come in and assume. So it had a lot going for it. Plus it was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which right now is a really hot area. But you know, again, wasn't making money. Census wasn't great. Probably needed a little bit of a facelift. The bones of the building were great, but definitely needed some upgrades. We went into it and I knew there would be a market for it, but we ended up having six or seven offers on it. Probably got them 20 to 25% more than we thought. It's a smaller deal, about a $6 million deal, but we thought it would go for maybe $5 million. It went for about six. So that was a real success story for us. It was a group that was able to close in two and a half months. And uh, the seller walked away from it feeling like they got a really good deal. And then the buyer also felt like there were some major efficiencies and upside in the building. And so I think they were really pleased with what they got. On the downside, I mean, I'll blame it on COVID, but we had a deal last year that was went under contract at a certain price in December or January of, I think it was January of 2020, was supposed to close in April of 2020. COVID hit, so everybody hit the brakes. 
the building lost 15% of its census from between deaths and people just moving out because they couldn't visit their loved ones. And that led to a pretty major retrade and renegotiation, which was probably also around the 20 to 25%. But renegotiations are not typical in our business. You know, it happens from time to time. There are circumstances that lead to it happening. But generally, when we go under contract, our expectation is that a buyer is going to close at that pricing. Now, there may be delays, but that's not something that is looked upon well in our, in our industry and is, is certainly not looked upon well by sellers. And every time I talk to a seller or prospective seller, they will ask about this buyer and what's been our experience with them. And if they end up retrading a deal for something that I didn't feel like was worthy of a retrade or renegotiation, you know, that can ultimately affect their reputation long-term. So extremely long-winded answer to your question, but ultimately we feel like we're really good at valuing properties. That's all we do is value seniors and skilled nursing facilities. But there are factors at play that we can't always control and we can't always foresee. So our goal and what we try to tell sellers is, hey, here's what we think. Here's been our track record and how close we've been to the pricing. We may have five buyers that see something in it that we didn't. And we also may feel like there's going to be a robust market for it. And for whatever reason, whether it's regulatory, whether it's staffing, whether it's competition, a new build or something like that, there may be a reason why buyers just aren't excited about it. But like I said, that's more the exception than the rule for us. In terms of brokerage firms in the US specifically that are specializing in senior living, is the rate pretty much the same if they talk to you or your competitor? Or does that vary? Commission rate? Mm -hmm. I think it varies. We have good relationships, I would say, with our competitors. I said it's a large industry, larger industry than you might think. But from a brokerage perspective, it's a pretty small industry. There aren't a ton of people that do this. There aren't a ton of firms that do this. We're all, like I said, pretty friendly, but we certainly never have discussions about commission rates and all that. You know, would certainly violate some license law. But you know, obviously, when we're talking to sellers, if I go out and propose a ten percent fee and my competitor proposes a one percent fee, obviously, I'm going to hear about that. You know, in general, I feel like we're all pretty similar in our fee asks. I'll just say we do not lose many deals at all as a company because of fee. If we lose a deal, it's because another broker put together a better package than we did or a better presentation than we did or a better um, relationship with that individual client. So, you know, certainly we've been nickel and dime before. It happens. It's part of the game. But I think from a commission perspective, we're all pretty similar. If we're not, again, we don't lose many deals at all because of fee. In terms of differentiators, why does your firm only concentrate on senior living? And then also, what would make you stand out? I'm sure if I spoke to any of your competitors, they would probably say relationships. If I can remove that as Come being on, your, your first answer. answer, that's um, easy answer. Why only senior living? And then for your competitors that also only do senior living, what makes you all stand out? First question, that's really easy. I don't think we'd be very good at anything else. We know this market and we don't strive to be a behemoth commercial real estate brokerage firm. 
we think we're really good at selling seniors housing and long-term care facilities. We don't have any interest in getting up outside of that. There was a time where we tried to do hospice. There's a time when we tried to do home health. It just didn't work for us. We feel like our culture matches up really well with this industry. We like being a 16, 15 to 20 broker company and don't really want to be a 100 broker company because you lose a lot of the culture that we have right now. So ultimately, I think it allows us to be really focused on our industry and know our industry inside and out. And I think our clients really appreciate that. Now, we have competitors that I think have groups that do a really good job doing seniors housing. And then they have groups that do commercial, industrial and manufacturing and office space and all that. I think our competitors do a really good job. But for us, that's not our goal. Our goal is to be really good at what we're doing. And I feel like we do it. As you said, relationships are really important. Building relationships are really important. But I think what we're good at is that we have, like I said, right now, 16 brokers that each have their own territory within the country. So I'm not fighting with Brad Clausing, who is in the Southeast, because the Southeast is his relationship territory and Texas and New Mexico and Louisiana is mine. And so there's some overlap. I mean, it's not perfect. I've got to walk over to his office or I've got to walk over to Jeff's office or whoever's office. And sometimes they're hard conversations we need to have, but we're able to dig really deeply into our own territory to the point where I know not every, but 90 plus percent of every nursing home owner in Texas, I know. And I know their individual facilities and I've driven past and been in a lot of them because I can devote 90% of my time to the Texas market because I know that Brad's not calling on Texas. And I have no benefit to go call on Florida because I know Brad's doing a really good job at it. So you multiply, you know, Matt and Brad and times 16, we cover the, the country really well. I don't think a lot of our competitors do it that way. I think a lot of competitors just kind of and sorry, you know, to the competitors if I'm misrepresenting anybody, but they kind of let their new hires kind of call who they need to. And maybe they give them some guidance on where to go. But if it takes them one spot, takes them another spot, they kind of follow those leads. For us, when I was starting to call, if a building, I heard about a building in Indiana, I called Ryan Saul, who handles Indiana. That was kind of the way our, our company works. So we're incredibly well entrenched in our markets. The other thing is, I think teamwork is probably another kind of easy thing for brokers to say. But for us, anytime I come out with a listing, and I'll give you a concrete example of this. Anytime we come out with a listing in Texas, we're having a call and sending out an email about each individual listing. So all of our 16 brokers know about each of our listings. And I had a deal on the Gulf Coast of Texas, which if you have many Texas operators listening, know that that's a pretty tough market right now because of hurricane risk and insurance costs are through the roof. It's just a lot of people just have decided, hey, we're going to kind of withdraw from that area. We're going to go more inland. We had a group out of the West Coast who got really excited about the deal for various reasons that we don't have to go into here. They ended up putting together the best of you know multiple offers that we had, but they put together the best offer. If you used, if that seller who was one of my best clients, somebody I've known for 14 or 15 years, have a great relationship with, if that seller used a brokerage firm that maybe didn't work together as much, 
that's an offer we would have missed because it would not have been shown to somebody I didn't know out of the West Coast. It would have been shown to mainly Texas groups. For this specific deal, the right buyer was the group out of the West Coast. And it was it was hard. It was a hard deal. It took a long time. It was right in the middle of COVID. But they were the group that ended up buying it. Again, I think it was a testament to the teamwork. So teamwork is a kind of a cliche when it comes to brokerage. Hey, we all work as a team. We all get along great. But that's kind of a concrete example for a about a $30 million portfolio that we were able to get done for the seller that outside of that teamwork, maybe we don't get to the number and the seller maybe doesn't get the deal done. Matt, we've talked about a lot today. We've talked about just general trends today. We've talked about what goes into the conversation and how you would help out a mom and pop shop start to talk about getting out. Is there any specific topic that we haven't talked about or any question that I haven't asked you that we should cover before we start to sign off? No, I mean, I think we are in a you know, at least I've been told that, you know, I've only been around for 15 years in this business, but we're in a historical moment, I think, in this industry. We're in a historical moment in our society, certainly because of COVID and hopefully getting through this, but certainly our industry is at a crossroads and was at a crossroads for the past 16 or 17 months. And I've told hopefully all of my clients this, but I'm in awe of the work that they've done throughout all this. I mean, I'll admit I was on the golf course a lot of it because I didn't have anything to do. There weren't transactions getting done. They were on the front lines and having to deal with staff members that were quitting and staff members that are getting infected and staff members that were doing things maybe they shouldn't have done and bringing in and having outbreaks and dozens of deaths. Like they've dealt with a lot. Our ability to come in after the fact last year was really stressful for our company because of the lack of transactions. But for us to come in and, and kind of relieve some of that for you know an operator that's tired or an operator that has 25 facilities and has these five that it's just time to get rid of because he or she's just exhausted. That's kind of our little role. Hopefully we're able to play to kind of support operators in this. But ultimately, I think our industry is at a little, a little bit of a crossroads. Labor is, is going to be really difficult. That problem's not going away. You know, I think the reputation of nursing homes specifically got hurt really badly early on in COVID because of the horror stories that you would hear. And as we got into the summer, I think people really understood that these nursing homes were doing an incredible job given the hand that they were dealt and saved hundreds of thousands of lives. I remember talking to one of my best clients in Fort Worth. I can say his name, Ryan Harrington, Trinity Carries. One of my best clients have worked with him a lot. And I talked to him maybe two weeks after kind of everything shut down. And he was literally calling, you know, as the president of a company that operates 20 something buildings in Texas, calling every single PPE provider and trying to find it, couldn't find anything, spending, I can't imagine how many millions of dollars to try to protect his staff and residents. And that you can multiply Ryan's story by hundreds and thousands throughout the country. I guess I just wanted to highlight a little bit. You know, I think in our business, we don't do a great job of kind of patting the people on the back that really did an incredible job during all this. And as a broker, it's easy for me and our other brokers to just be so involved in our own transactions that we kind of gloss over that. I guess want to mention to, I'm sure a lot of your mm -hmm. listeners are operators or vendors or whatever it may be that kind of helped get our industry through all this. We're all a lot better off because all of you guys were involved. 
Matt, I appreciate that for wrapping things up. I know that there's some listeners that are going to want to find you and reach out to you and ask you for advice. Where can we find Matt Alley on online and how can they communicate with you? Yeah, well, if our uh, search engine optimizers, if those are real people are doing a good job, hopefully you can just Google senior living investment brokerage to be a little bit more specific, SLIB. So senior living investment brokerage. So slibinc.com will get you to our website. My email address is Allie, A-L-L-E-Y at slibinc.com. Feel free to reach out to me at any time. I know I spent a lot of time talking about Texas, but for every Matt Alley in Texas, there's somebody in your market that I can point you to. And I'm happy to do that, whether it be in our St. Louis or, or our Chicago offices. But yeah, I appreciate Peter, the opportunity to kind of pass along our contact information. I'll put those in the show we're, notes. We're really busy. We've got a lot going on. We're working on a ton of deals, but we have plenty of bandwidth to take on new ones. And we have plenty of buyers knocking on our doors for just about every deal we've put out on the market. There's been four or five groups that have missed out on it for various reasons that want to see something else. Thanks for all your time and, and your patience. And, and lastly, I want to ask you, because being a father of four kids and listeners might think that you're probably in this only for the numbers and the financials. And I doubt that highly having interacted with you a number of times when your kids get a little bit old and they say, dad, why didn't you choose a sexier job? What are you going to say what you love about our industry? This is such an easy answer and it's so cliche, but it's the people. Other commercial real estate brokers in, in other industries do not have the relationships that we have. And it's not just me. It's not just senior living investment brokerage. I, I'm sure it's all other brokerage firms. The operators, the people that own nursing homes are a different breed of people than the people that own office space or the people that own storage units. They're out there for cap rates and all that. And obviously our operators wouldn't be good operators if they weren't looking out for the bottom line as well. But the bottom line doesn't happen without taking care of people. There's been no greater reminder than what happened You know, March, April, May kind of throughout 2020. And then also the vaccine effort and everything everything they did during December, January, and February to get as many staff members and residents vaccinated as possible. The people that operate nursing homes. Now, nobody's perfect. None of these operators are perfect. There are people out there that will take shortcuts to make an extra dollar. That happens everywhere. I'm of the belief that operators and owners in our business do that less than any other real estate, any other, at least commercial real estate piece of the industry. So that's it. You know, as brokers, obviously, we're not super involved with caring for people. I mean, you know, obviously, I walk in those buildings all the time and are able to see the great work that they're doing. But, you know, again, we're working with operators that, for the most part, have a lot of integrity, have spent their lifetime or at least their working lifetime caring for seniors who oftentimes are the most vulnerable, uh, certainly have been over the past 16 months or so. But the people that we deal with are the best. I couldn't have picked a better industry to get into from a brokerage perspective. Obviously, you know, in 2006, all you hear is, I love this, you know, you're getting into a great industry because it's growing. People are getting older, the baby boomers, all that. In reality, we were 15 or 20 years away from that. But I was getting into a great industry because of the people that work in the industry. And I truly believe that. I mean, I haven't been able to go to conferences for the past 16 months. And, you know, as much as that can be a pain and be draining, 
you know, you miss that kind of face-to-face with these clients who, you know, ultimately a lot of times they become friends. Great. I appreciate all of your insight and sharing of your perspective. I think I shared this with you in my first call. I've reached out to five to 10 brokers over the last nine months of working on this podcast. And a lot of them wouldn't share their their tricks and their secrets and uh, you just being open and open book for this. I really appreciate it, Matt. Thank you for joining LTC Heroes. I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Sounds great. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate you having me on. Talk to you soon. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.